you're listening to Estranged, and uh, Helen and I are very happy that we can have a comeback guest, uh, one of our favorites. It's uh, Peter Rollins, Dr. Peter Rollins, um, and you know we're all from our homes and, and trying to deal with this whole COVID thing. And actually, we're going to talk about COVID. Um, we, it's funny because we had sort of set up that we were going to talk about contagion, but nobody saw it. Or <laughs> well, you were, Helen, you were saying that it's kind of shittier than you remember. I watched it the weekend. Um, I remember watching it back when it came out. I think it was like 2011, 2012. And just remembering the thing about it was that the color grade sucked. Mm -hmm. And I watched it again this time and I'm like, how? How? What? How? Somebody explain to me how this looks the way it does. I don't know if it was like... It's like raw, right? It looks like, like raw footage. No, it's like it's like they've got a freaking highlighter and scribbled all over it. And then oh, everything's okay. blown out. And it like doesn't it doesn't match... And there's some bits that are like really blue, some bits that are like really yellow. I don't know if it's just deliberately to put you off. It doesn't also, seem like Soderbergh is really into like the look of uh, of his films because like he even did one yeah. on the iPhone, right? Yeah, he did that unseen. I think I don't know if he was the cinematographer on um, Contagion because he like shoots his own stuff often under a different name. Yeah. But um, it was. I have to say, I thought it was like, oh, you know, so popular on Netflix, top 10 movie, let's watch it. What does it say about people must be getting something out of it because of yeah. the situation. But what do you think is like, just... what do you think is like the highlight of his career? Because I thought, um, what was the one with uh, Catherine Zeta-Jones, Channing Tatum, uh, Side Effects? I thought that yeah. was, that was pretty Side good. Effects. I literally can't remember Side Effects, but I have seen it. He did something very weird. I don't know if you saw it, but... Um, he took Indiana Jones, the movie, and then replaced yeah. the soundtrack with the soundtrack for The Social Network. Uh-huh. <laughs> and it's in black and white. Yeah, yeah. He does, like, all this weird experimental that. stuff. I, I, like, I have to say, messing with soundtracks is amazing. I don't know if I, I told you about this, but one of the most amazing films of the 21st century, Drive, obviously incredible score. Yeah. Uh, and it is really made by the music, to be honest. Yeah. And they did, like, a Radio 1 young emerging artists rescore drive and this was to be in like 2013 or 2014 mm -hmm. and it was like uh you know it had like was it churches and all this kind of stuff and it was so the film was bad yeah but the thing is it's just like because obviously it would be bad because it's not that the music's bad or the film's bad it's just it was everything is ten intended sometimes you know, every it, choice yeah. is there for a reason so it just is like it just it was it was just funny it really exposes the integral part of like the concordance between the choice of everything you do rather than just like this is good this mm -hmm. is good this is good you know it's like yeah, it has yeah. to be good for a reason i was watching uh, yeah like I, I sometimes i watch all these movies from like the 40s that i really like but it's always the, like i was watching laura yesterday remember that one the otto preminger one with uh gene gene turney oh it's pretty good um but the thing that always bothers me is just like the the soundtrack. It always seems to me like just kind of out of time. Um, but yeah, you you never saw it, Peter? Contagion? No, I, I you know I might have watched it when it initially came out, but I can't remember anything about it. Uh, I do see yeah. it on Netflix, kind of being recommended to me because obviously people are kind of watching it because of the current climate. But um, yeah, I've got nothing sadly to say about it. So what, what is, what's the, is it a similar kind of virus? Is it a flu-like uh, it's contagion? A, it's a, it's a, 25% of people die who have it. And it yeah. is a, a sort of flu, I guess, that causes seizures. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, but 
the, the, the film, I, I mean, the, the, I guess the reason why people watch it is because, or have, or even when, when it came out, I was really surprised that it was a hit because it's, okay, I, I don't like to be like, this is a bad movie, but I think it's a bad movie. But mm. um, not, but the funny thing is, I guess it's not bad, it's just indifferent. Like often I'll watch a movie and be like, this is just ideologically awful. Or I'll watch a movie and be like, this is just amazing. And like, this is total indifference to Contagion. It just is. It's like it's, it's a it's a dramatized documentary almost. A series of things happen. People yeah. go a bit crazy and steal stuff. Some people die. Yeah. Some people do things, and then that's the end. Yeah. So I don't know if anybody. You know, it's interesting that people are like obviously are going to seek out something like that because of the situation. But like obviously, maybe they can get more of what they're looking for from other things. I was just thinking when Adrian, you introduced Peter as like Doctor Peter Rollins, we have the front. <laughs> I just do that because I know that in annoying essential yeah. work, <laughs> as in like philosophy can help us, right? In this yeah, situation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, in in my opinion, we're going to talk about a, a much better film, which is uh, one that you directed, Helen, and it's called Alone with Two L's. Do you want to talk a little yeah. bit about the title and? The, what yes, that was my idea, by the way. I didn't bring, no, <laughs> I didn't bring very much to the table, but uh, apart from raising some money, but I, I got the title. That was my work of genius. It just, came it, in a dream. It did. did it, it actually did. I woke up. Um, I think I woke up with it in my head. I'd been thinking about a possible title because we, we originally called it Mustard Seeds. And um, yeah. It just a few people watched it and i think they were looking for some connection between the biblical story of you know jesus talking about mustard seeds and they were like uh, mm -hmm. so it had a very religious connotation and i was sitting there trying to figure out a, a name or a title that would kind of capture the essence of the film and alone um i kind of like i wanted there was three things that were in my head and I was thinking of a word that captured the three meanings and a word didn't exist. So we made one up. Uh, so do you want me to talk about the three meanings very briefly and then see where it goes? Mm -hmm. um, well, it was interesting when, when Pete first suggested it, because I mean, I used to speak Italian and I don't speak it anymore. All I could see was the word aloni, as in like calzone. <laughs> in America you say like calzone, but I was like, they're just people are just gonna read the name of the pastor, but actually it did grow on me a lot. Yes, I think I remember so. texting you it, and then when I talked to you, you were like a loony, and I was like, oh no, if it sounds like a loony, <laughs> if, that's, <laughs> if that's how people are going to pronounce it, then that's not going to work. <laughs> no, but it does actually, it does actually, the way, and Pete's idea for the um, the way the word emerges on the screen works a lot, so. Oh yeah, that was me as well. Me, yeah. Oh, that was, that was those were, those were my two contributions, <laughs> which I think are the that's what makes the film. To be honest, let's. Also, I have to say, I always get shit for being like way too obsessive and like I, I, like really just like this is you know got a this precise tiny thing we have to adjust. We have to. I have never seen such deliberation as all the numerous passes of the font and the way that the text spread than Pete's interaction with this title sequence. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was it was one of those situations where the first one was so close to being right, but then every time I tried to explain the little thing that I was that was a problem, I miscommunicated it, and we kind of every every iteration started to go further and further away. So uh, eventually, I think I was really pissing the guy off by the end. He's a really good guy. Uh, <laughs> this is how. This is literally how I feel. Who was the guy who, who did <laughs> like the, the design? 
Uh, it was a guy called um, Andy um, Morgan. Is it Andy Morgan? Who's um, I think who, it's Morgren. Morgren, yeah. Who does some work with the Valley Cast? Uh, the, my, oh, okay. which my podcasting partner uh, he he works for him. So he's very yeah. good at, at, at animation stuff. But yeah, we really wanted. Under- I want. Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. Sorry. Oh yeah, I was just saying. You know, I wanted a title sequence that kind of kind of captured all three meanings at the same time even though of course you know it it passes in five seconds it was like can we do a title sequence that that basically says alone a-l-o-n-e uh that we're all alone and that we're all one in being alone Mm -hmm. yeah so there you go people this is the summary of peter's life's work the universal and the particular, reaching the universal through the particular and the shared lack. There you go. Bam. Exactly. <laughs> and it's, it's about simul- yeah. them being simultaneous. So it's not a move like a, yeah. you know, Trinitarian kind of father, son, holy ghost. It's kind of like there. So it's not you move from being alone to being all one. It's the idea is, of course, that we are uh, one in that we all share a lack. That's that's. Yeah. So it's yeah. It's nicely dialectical. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen yeah. this thing um, a lot. Obviously, there's this like two way um, different positions I've noticed in the media in response to uh, this idea of everybody's affected by the virus. There was a, a BBC presenter in the news the other day who kind of broke with BBC news tradition and gave her opinion and said, you know, people are saying that this is a great leveler. And that's absolutely rubbish because it applies, it affects people from different classes and backgrounds in different ways, obviously. And that's obviously a given. And I do sometimes worry when you, when uh, one says that everybody is alone or that mm-hmm. everybody is that basically the universal. When you talk about the universal, like sometimes I think people who are like class first people or anybody can be like, well, that's objectively wrong because from a materialist thing, we're all obviously it's unequal and everybody has mm-hmm. some people have a nice life and some people do but i guess the thing is it's like this is not an either or mm-hmm. it's yes. like and we're talking about subjectivity yes and we're talking um, about lack over loss so loss is kind of yeah the, the concrete losses and things that one doesn't have in everyday life and lack is the what constitutes subjectivity and so in a way yeah it's about trying to kind of parse out the difference between loss and uh, lack and uh, you know the film yeah. is more about as you say it's, it's about subjectivity it's about, about what constitutes humanity um, mm-hmm. yeah and I, I think this does confuse um, you know people who say that they're like Marxist or materialist and then people maybe on the other side who are like liberal uh, or into critical theory and stuff like that but mm. actually there is like a real crux here between the two and I just in terms of like talking about that BBC news presenter who said like we as people are saying this is a great leveler this is rubbish and then on the other side you have the like Gal Gadot singing her imagine and we're all in this together it's like well that yeah we're not talking about yeah materially we're talking about meta, like subjectively I guess yeah yeah right? yeah and there's an ethical dimension to that because it, it, you know, one could see the kind of the, the the accumulating of wealth and fame and power as precisely an attempt to cover over the constitutive lack. So you, one could say that that actually, uh, you know, capitalist system and what we the way we live and not and just the very much the nature of human subjectivity is 
our desire to cover over anxiety, what Kierkegaard calls dread, um, means that we can try to accumulate more. And so the very concrete inequalities we see in the world are partly, partly connected to an inability to just be able to embrace the anxiety of existence and, 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 and instead of trying to fill it with, with something. And this is also, I think this um, is also important to point out that this isn't like some conservative or aesthetic um, position, which is like minimalism or don't accumulate, you know, yeah, yeah, it's, no. it's not about not enjoying what you have. And I think there's, um, there are a few uh, more kind of like materialist Marxist commentators who are like, no, people can have whatever they want, you know, we shouldn't. Uh, denigrate the desire for working people to like buy stuff and obviously there's a sort of an arm to the um, green movement that's sort of like anti-working class in a way but it's it's interesting because I feel like this the kind of thing that we're trying to illustrate sort of like isn't like a catch-all but it positions the approach where all of all of the things that emerge out of it that are major potentially positions that some people express in and of themselves it's sort of like encapsulated and like um, explained and solved. Does that make sense? Yeah. Maybe not. No, no, I, I like that. But, well, I had a question. Like, so you were saying about like lack is sort of like the, the constitution or constitutive of, of, of life. And then loss is, it seems to me that loss maybe is sort of what keeps on life on going on through like repetition, right? And it's like, you know, you experience the loss over and over again of something else. But it seems like in the in the movie, in the short, there's like a there's like a moment of clarity for her, where mm-hmm. like experiencing like it, this sort of death ride where she's like knocking on every door trying to to like resuscitate his his uh, his baby through like the, these mustard seeds. Um, there's a point where she has like what Lacan calls like that quilting point where the signifier is like actually coincides with the signified and things sort of make sense and that's what allows her to like let that go um and does that does that sort of make sense do you buy that yeah no i think that's a beautiful way to describe it but by the way i i wonder whether we need to describe (laughs) we i love i one of the things i love about estranged (laughs) is that you guys go straight into the the topic and uh you know you say we're going to talk about this film and then i go like i don't even know if they mentioned it once (laughs) (laughs) so i i don't know but should uh, helen do you want to say briefly what the story's about (laughs) i mean i could i could like read out a summary i wrote or should i just like basically explain it oh you could basically explain it i think okay basically yeah 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 yeah. god this is like the worst thing obviously i spend my time like writing log lines which is where you have to like summarize your entire complicated story into a sentence and it's really effing difficult uh, because as soon like trying to explain your own work it's just like what it's kind of like a thesis that, or something it's like an arbitrary an abstract like a pressy or something but anyway so um a woman who is all alone uh has a child that is on the verge of dying so she, you know, is at her wit's end. She's very desperate. She goes out and tries to look for a cure. She sees witch doctors, um, heat, faith healers, and none of them can do anything. And she finds herself, she's kind of on this journey. We set it in ancient Ireland. So she's in the middle of this barren land. 
and a woman uh, approaches her, somebody who's heard of, you know, there's this woman walking around trying to find an answer. And the woman tells her that there, there is an answer. There's a woman, a holy woman who lives on top of a mountain and that she will surely be able to help. She has the cure to her suffering. Um, so the young woman goes to the top of the mountain and meets this holy woman. The holy woman says that she must, um, that there is a cure, that she can help her and that uh, she needs to find mustard seeds but the mustard seeds have to come from a house that hasn't been overshadowed by the quote-unquote black sun of suffering. So um, she has to t make this into a tea and feed the tea to the child. So, you know, the, the young woman, by, by this stage, sorry, I should say the child is dead at this stage, but she is anticipating that she can revive the child. So she kind of runs off and uh, finds, enters the community and finds people who might have the seeds. And she finds people, and everybody does have a set of seeds, but everybody has obviously been touched by suffering. Each house has been touched mm -hmm. by the black sun, overshadowed, whatever. You know, people have lost their children, their husbands, in war, through illness. But this act of uh, interacting with the community and coming to terms with the fact that everybody has lost allows her to find a cure, and the cure is for her suffering not for the mortality of the child. So mm -hmm. she's able to, through this consolation, bury the child and come to understand that A, she is not alone in her suffering, and B, that death is the only thing that makes life real. Mm -hmm. And that's it. Yeah. So whenever, uh, whenever Adrian, you, you know, you used the, the idea of the signifier kind of like coinciding with the signified, so is that basically that, you know, she's able to symbolize the lack she's able to kind of make sense of that is that how you read yeah. what's going on yeah i thought uh, so and i yeah, yeah. I, thought, I thought that was very nice where it's just like but that she's like sort of repeating the loss you know because it's it must yeah. be very devastating that uh every time that she knocks on the doors it's like it's impossible to find mustard seeds from a house that hasn't been touched by suffering and mm -hmm. uh through that, she comes to like a, a moment of clarity. And I thought, yeah, it's pretty nice. It works really nicely. It's interesting what you say about this idea of a quilting point. And we should probably talk about this. A quilting point is a Lacanian term for um, where basically like the symbolic chain is like unified. Yeah. And so you don't have this sort of free floating self within like that's impacted by the real. So basically like the symbolic protects you from the like overwhelming real and in psychosis. Mm -hmm. There isn't a quilting point, so I guess the cure for psychosis is different from the cure for neurosis. So you you have to like impose some kind of arbitrary meaning, and it ha happens often through like paranoia. That's why psychotic people can be paranoid because they're trying to impose this like grand and symbolic narrative. Yeah. And actually, I was reading Morning and Melancholia today, and I guess there is a theory that mourning is temporary psychosis. Like yeah. grief is temporary psychosis is the closest that a neurotic person will come to the experience of psychosis in that when, um, you know, some somebody very important for you um, dies and you mm. have a lot of attachment to that individual, yeah. the tear in reality is like exposed as like an unplugging mm -hmm. and you are um, overridden by meaninglessness. Mm -hmm. And mourning, the mourning process, the like symbolization process of like uh, coming to terms with and rationalizing and understanding the loss, you can paper over that crack in the real. 
yeah and then this and this woman's very much a neurotic <clears throat> rather than a psychotic i guess so this is a this is a film i guess about mourning it's a film about she is thrown into as you say the kind of a very close to a psychotic break you know reality uh, unfolds unravels and through this journey of uh, talking to others who have experienced loss she gradually is able to make sense of uh, that and kind of like find I suppose find a footing in reality again would that be mm-hmm. the way you would describe it her journey it's interesting I hadn't thought about um, the film in the way that Adrian described it mm. until now so that's very interesting I when think you guys, that is very true when you guys are coming up with a story I mean I don't I know this was kind of adapted but you guys did a mm-hmm. great job with the, with the script um, when you guys well, yeah, are writing let me a say story, that by the way very briefly it's an adaptation yeah. from an ancient Buddhist parable yeah it's just that's glad you mentioned that yeah. in case it sounded like we made that up someone's going to write in and say <laughs> you stole it <laughs> that's because by the way very much by the way, an adaptation yeah. you're going to have a lot of trouble finding mustard seeds in Ireland <laughs> <laughs> that was a little nod <laughs> to the parable because okay. uh, I don't okay. think they exist yeah. in Ireland, but we kept it in because the we wanted to nod. The film isn't about well, okay, on a on a technical level, it is about realism, like anything that distracts from you know you're, yeah. you're trying to you try you're attempting to create realism. Yeah, but it's more, but but actually, what it's doing is more than real. So yes. oh yeah, well, and that was that was that oh new. yeah, and that was our nod. That was a kind of a reference and purposeful reference to the parable but uh, sorry yeah. Adrian, keep going I interrupted you oh no um, well I was going to say that when you guys are writing something or coming up with an idea or the concept um, do you sort of map out this, the the sort of like well I guess what I'm trying to ask is do you psychoanalyze the characters um, so that they behave in a way that is like coherent uh, or do you not really I think did. about that you know? see that's yeah that's a difference between the two things so for me I mean, I am always interested, to be honest, I'm always interested in something that communicates the cure or what something that yep. communicates a type of emancipatory politics or emancipatory experience for the individual. And so mm-hmm. my, I was drawn to that Buddhist story because I thought there was something within it that captured um, this, this, this notion of the cure. Uh, but then I think, yeah, Helen, you're more of the artist. You're you you come at this. Yeah, as but a... I do, I wouldn't. I, I basically I think um, the the only attempt at like uh, gridifying or codifying something is through the structuring of the story, mm-hmm. which is like a, a like a tech a technique. Like I guess composing a song has like a chorus and it has yeah. like eight eight well like twelve notes or whatever. So I would like um, have an idea. And then obviously use that at like a scheme for a story to like, but the thing is, this is, this is obviously different because obviously it's like slightly different from, well, the funny thing is also about like, um, about something like a parable like this. It's like, who knows what the original story was? I certainly haven't read the original story and you sort of like just weaponize it and be mm. like, okay, let's just say this. But I think it is, I think it's pretty much exactly the same. I, the only, I had heard it when, Pete was recording a podcast with Rob Bell like four years ago. It was like a god was it the God series that you guys did? I think it might have been, yeah. And you mentioned this podcast and was like, this is the most cinematic thing I've ever seen in my mind's eye. And also it has like the ultimate message. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. 
this is like this is it yeah. this is it um but i wouldn't like yeah i wouldn't psychoanalyze I, yeah as as peter said i think i would only be interested in like maybe the final point being some emancipatory point yeah. right yeah yeah and, right. No, and i love the way that it go ahead go, go ahead, ahead. Well, no, I was just going to change the subject. Your, if it was like a follow-up, it would be better. <laughs> hey, I was going to say, it's your <laughs> podcast. You get to interrupt me. But, oh, yeah, well, on this, um, just that I think that one of, and I take this from Todd McGowan. He did a very nice little video on this, but that great films um, confront you with the gaze. They confront you with, in a sense, your um, the, the they take away the fantasy of your desires. They confront you with... The reality of the abyss in some sort of way so citizen kane tells you that the the very object that uh kane is looking for that will satisfy him is actually just this old uh sled um and yeah. so i i think i i'm even with alone the idea is that she's looking for the thing that will bring back her dead child she's looking for the thing that will make her whole and the idea is the film confronts you with the idea that actually you have to come to terms with the loss, uh, even making love, the short film that Helen directed before this is similar. It's a love affair where two people think they can complete each other, but then the film confronts you with the kind of fact that it's a bit of a fantasy that the two people play in order to prevent themselves from looking at the the kind of mundane dimension of existence. So there's yeah. something about those types of movies that I'm always drawn to not necessarily to watch <laughs> I quite like the fantasy but um, if, if I'm involved in producing something that's that's something I'm very interested in I love the idea that I love I love this idea of, of uh, our relationship being impossible sort of like what drives it and the fact that it maybe that's what makes it the most intense right do you think mm -hmm. that maybe there is a way in which even <laughs> even like marriage can be some kind of like that like you you maintain the impossibility of the marriage like in you sort of like your everyday relationship it's oh say a bit more about that i think you're right but uh just take it apart for me well more. yeah like okay so i think that maybe a lot of people say that one of the reasons why uh, marriage doesn't work or that it, it sort of like becomes stale is because the other person stops being a mystery to you. And there's sort of like, you know, it, it, there's too much openness or you see them too much. There's like, they're like overly present or something like that. But is that yeah. even really realistic? Isn't it the fact that like, there's always something that is like non-incorporable of the other, like you can't you can't penetrate it like no matter how hard you try because they're even a stranger to themselves so yes maybe there's a way in which like the fidelity to that sort of absence or that distance is even more radical i don't know yeah no i i think that's that's very good i think you know shizek talks about marriage in, in some ways as what you do precisely to get away from the over intensity of love uh it's to uh <laughs> yeah. it's the, the, the suffering of it um so that you can kind of get on with everyday life and uh you know you know that the love isn't related to the desire of the other it's sickness and unhealth richer or poorer so in some weird mm -hmm. in some way marriage is a way to protect you from the desire of the other but also to protect you from the the suffering of an intense kind of over proximity of love like the contingency uh, of like something that is not like through the law or something like that 
Uh, say that again. Well, I mean, it's just like if you're not. I mean, they're obviously sort of like different different types of relationships, you know. If you're with yeah, somebody, yeah. but it's just sort of like not 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 through the law. Um, do you think that there is a sort of there's a sort of contingency that like inflames the 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 romantic aspect of it when you're not married or when you, yeah 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 oh yes yes I see what you, yeah you, when you're not married yes I think there's this intensity that can be generated from impossibility and from uh, prohibition etc and in marriage in a way is the other side of that because now you're you're together <laughs> so um yeah. it takes a lot some of that intensity away and that actually instead of being the bad thing because a lot of people think that's the yeah as you said a lot of people think that's the bad thing about marriage but precise but perhaps that's the gift of marriage the gift of marriage yeah. is to uh give a little bit more um uh, uh space to away from that intensity and also it gives yeah. the ability to have an affair which then allows you to have all of that intensity behind the other person's back. <laughs> the only yeah. way to have an affair is if you're married. <laughs> so. yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> did, did you see a sort of parallel between alone and uh, with the situation that's happening right now, the pandemic? Helen, do you want to take that? Because I think you see a connection there. Yeah. I mean, well, uh, I, I, uh, there's the there's the like the the like I guess the obvious one which is like everybody is alone at the same time and unified yeah. in their aloneness like the physical separation um, and I, I I think it kind of like the thing that I'm kind of like been interested in recently is it was interesting talking to to like um, Benjamin last week who is a like a political theorist and I would share like his opinions on a political front. But then I'm like more um, interested in subjectivity and I see like, um, and just like the, the dialectic between that and how maybe people misuse critical theory and psychoanalysis to apply to things that like um, should not be, um, should not have it applied to and how things like Marxism has been like really ruined by like, <laughs> second and third generation critical theorists by like applying it to the superstructure instead of like the um the actual base of society and stuff and i think that the thing is like this film which i think I, I mentioned earlier in the podcast that i'm kind of like interested in is how both what um the lady on bbc news said can be true that it is not a leveler and it also is and i'm interested in yeah yeah. just yeah just this is idea of loss and lack and i think this film does address loss yeah. and lack simultaneously yeah. well it can expose i mean the the current situation and uh, the film i suppose is about trying to say that and I, i've been reading uh, kierkegaard recently so i feel like i'm kind of uh this has been in my mind but it exposes that anxiety is a type of universal um so for Kierkegaard, anxiety is in a sense the disquiet of a confrontation with a lack. You know, whenever your world mm -hmm. uh, doesn't make sense, whenever you have to acknowledge that um, you, you're free to make certain decisions, nobody can make those decisions for you, or when you're confronted with uh, the breakdown of society or your God or whatever it is, and you, you kind of momentarily mm -hmm. kind of glimpse a type of void at the center of everything and so for yeah. some people i guess 
you can say that 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 is where everyone that doesn't matter if you're a king or uh, or if you're you know a farmer working the land but uh we we are all uh riven by lack and uh, and maybe something like yeah. a pandemic kind of it momentarily kind of helps people glimpse that momentarily kind of um uh we see behind the veneer i don't know like we see the abyss mm-hmm. i think uh the boris johnson being in intensive care is an example of this um and how <laughs> things work on a material yeah. and a symbolic level because like obviously you can be like completely anti the conservative party position you mm. can be against what they stand for etc and what boris johnson stands for or as i see it doesn't stand for because i think he just is an ideological free agent um but it's a symbolic te- well the tear in the fabric of the real when Anybody who's in a position of power, and we can like logically know who's the only person, but obviously when you have the title of prime minister, and then yeah, him, I think him going into intensive care and like possibly dying was something that I could feel on a level, in a subjectival level, not just on like oh well, you know this has happened, da da da. You know, it really kind of exposes that there's so, yeah there's something about the the role of the prime minister and we can like have some kind of transference onto it and the fact that this person could like die yeah cause anxiety <laughs> um, really, i think it's really like like kind of yeah it does provoke anxiety i also wonder um, whether um yeah. i also wonder whether you know there's this uh, it's kind of the joke going around that the people that we should be really worried about are the celebrities because they're doing particularly badly at the moment <laughs> um but I, there could they are, yeah. Yeah, they, yeah. but there could be a truth to that what do you mean like they're just like they like they don't they're, they're not having out. as much attention yeah well, and they seem to be freaking out about it <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> for people who have tried to avoid anxiety through wealth yeah. and fame and who have not had to, who have had the freedom to keep their lives incredibly busy and have things going on all the time and have affirmation all the time, to get that taken away um, means that they may not be able to handle anxiety to the same level as as somebody else. So there is there's a possibility that actually celebrities are more prone to anxiety attacks <laughs> because um, because they've they have uh, constructed a life in which they try to avoid that anxiety um, through, you know, money and fame. I mean, that's not obviously not every celebrity or anything, but you kind of wonder whenever I see how some of them are acting, uh, you're going, oh, you know, maybe this is a a kind of confrontation with the abyss that you've been trying to avoid all your life. Yeah. Uh, Well, maybe it's like sort of like a great equalizer in a sense. And maybe that's one of the ways in which it could connect to the short and it's that um, I don't know if you guys buy it, buy this, but like everybody's been saying, sort of like how things are never going to be the same, and how this is going to radically change things in a way that is unprecedented. Do you guys think that's going to happen? Because if if that is what is going to happen, one of the one of the things that maybe is a little bit hopeful about it is that everybody would suffer sort of the same consequences, even like rich people, because one of the devastating things about the society that we live in um i sound like the fucking joker but um the one of the ways that 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 it's completely devastating is that there's only consequences for people that don't have any money 
basically. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, rich people can always get away with it. But it's there's something sort of refreshing about the fact that maybe something can happen that is completely... It doesn't follow the rules of class. It's just yes. totalized. Yeah. totalized. I'm, I'm, yeah. yeah, I'm very torn about this because I totally agree. And the, 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 the reason why I'm torn is because I know that if if some massive change happens, it's going to be devastating. It's going to be utterly devastating to millions of people. However, it could create redistribution and it could create a different type of economy that in the long run is better for people and better for the environment. And so it's really hard because you can't kind of wish for the devastation but you kind of see that you do want to return to normal. And so I don't know what you guys think about that. It's how, how do you kind of hope for a radical change when you also have concern that a radical change in the short term will be very devastating to, to many, many people? Yeah, that's a great point because... Why, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, this, I think this is why I call myself a dialectical materialist rather than just like... Yeah, I think, I think materialism like definitely misses a trick on this. And Todd McGowan has so much to say about this, but it requires a confrontation with the real and with the lack for that to happen. And climate change wasn't enough, hasn't been enough. Yeah. 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 Well, I, I, I also thought about like this whole thing about maybe there's a limit to Marx because, you know, he talks about this whole thing of like the, the specter of communism haunting Europe and society mm -hmm. in general. Mm -hmm. But maybe... And this is like maybe one of the reasons why the whole thing, like Bernie Sanders just dropped out and a lot of people are sort of like freaked out about that or devastated. Um, but maybe a, a huge change like that, that is structural and that it's sort of like, it, it, it erases what is going on like politically and like starts from like, like a zero level. It's not something that you can do through like electoral politics or through yeah. like democracy even. It, it, it's maybe even something that it's completely beyond the control of people, like overall. It's not something that you can conjure up and just like vote on m making change. It's something that happens uh, mm -hmm. in spite of you, in spite of politics. Like it, it, it doesn't matter. Like it, there's no, we have no contribution to it. It, it comes because it's, it's, na it's yes. almost like natural. Right. Yes, that, that's a good point, because it's not that you're then hoping for somebody to come in and make a devastating change. It's like you're going, no, we're in the devastating change. It's just happening. It, this yeah. was not to do with any individual. However, can we harness this to be different? Because I find myself partly after the fact, yeah. after the fact, exactly, because I there's part of me that hopes are going, oh, I hope the economy can open up, that people can get back to work, et cetera, et cetera. And then there's obviously the part of me that's going well no maybe this disaster is big enough that we can hope for something more than that so i'm not just hoping that workers can go back to their to their low-paid jobs but i can actually hope that we can think about a different way to do society do you know the greatest devastation though potentially is and we were talking about this last night is the stimulus package and as the fact that there wasn't time to make proper like rigorous globe you know like universalist movements in it as in stuff that's going to help normal people and we have like solidified the system 
again. And the thing that does worry me is like, we clearly don't live in a democracy anymore. We live in an oligarchy and that was a massive transfer of wealth just then. Yeah. So I'm slightly worried about that, but anyway. And that's one of the things that sort of like, you know, even that, because I think that maybe currency can become like void, but Amazon is doing pretty well right now, maybe even better than ever, because everybody's like sort of like at home and mm -hmm. it's where it's very worrying. But at the same time, uh, you know, like in, in currency or, or it, it's it's basically just like a, what, what do they call it? It's like a fiat symbol. Uh, mm -hmm. It doesn't actually mean any like money doesn't mean anything at all. It's just symbolic. So yeah. like at, like at any point, this could sort of like become nothing at all. I mean, it seems to me like it's even the same with like Netflix and all of these things. It's just like technologies for sort of staving off boredom uh, are mm -hmm. like doing incredibly well right now. Yeah. Yeah. The one thing that can go wrong is hyperinflation. Just saying. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. I just, I just am like, I'm slightly nervous about, uh, but then I guess, you know, as Peter says, then something more drastic can lead to change, but hyperinflation led to the Nazis. So yeah. Anyway. Pete, do you think that, uh, okay. Do you think that there can come a point where capitalism sort of goes beyond nature and beyond like natural disaster sort of like, you hear this a lot from like people like Kurt, uh, what, what is uh, Kurzweil? Ray Kurzweil, um, Elon Musk, all of these guys, uh, Bill Gates, they're just like saying like, oh, you know, the, the resourcefulness of humanity will allow us to overcome whatever comes our way. And yeah. I mean, that's obviously like through capitalism. Do you think that there's like a limit to that? Um, well, you know, this is this is actually the, like the best argument for capitalism is that it's able to manage like its own contradiction uh now and of course she's that kind of brings this up it's also the best argument against capitalism is that it, it it continues to create crises and then solve the crises and then create crises um so is that kind of the the argument is that that capitalism is the end could be the end of history because it it's um it continually it creates crises, but then try then finds ways to overcome that. Rather than whereas in previous modes of production, a crisis arises and then it leads to a new mode of production: slavery to feudalism, feudalism to capitalism. Is that the kind yeah. of argument that Elon Musk is making? Well, I mean, yeah, like that capitalism will sort of thrive in whatever iteration society yeah. takes. So in any way that capitalism is going to change sort of like the face of society, uh, capitalism can adapt. And it seems to me like it really does. The yeah. fact that people are not going to work and the fact that people are staying home, like capitalism sort of like went into the interstices of, of, of like the way that we live and it's like thriving through it. Um, I guess the only sort of threat against capitalism at this point is just like imminent death and <laughs> just like t the total destruction of like human life. But do you not think it's suffering deeply? Like actually, because it was in America where, you know, ex capitalism has to expand constantly either into new territories or into debt or into monetizing personal experiences. And it feels like yeah. um, that uh, actually cap there's elements of capitalism, like, you know, you say Amazon's doing well, but I wonder if um, the whole thing is is close to the edge. I don't know. Well, it, though, it seems to me like it's. It, oh, go ahead. Yeah. I was going to say it has to create its own crises. Like, 
that 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 each ten year crisis is is integral to capitalism continuing to function. Yeah, yeah. I mean the the big difference between capitalism and then a form of socialism um, is that I guess is there a stage of history in which we can not keep. Uh, it does keep disavowing the crisis and then it comes back in a kind of return of the repressed in a very violent way. Um, yeah. And I think the answer to that is democracy in the workplace. Like I, I think that democracy is a way to, to get contradiction to work. So that the contradiction between lots of different interested parties in society engaging in a democratic process that hopefully has benefits that that incre- the kind of basically increasing democracy into the workplace. Um, well, yeah. I mean, it's also it's a very easy answer, but on the surface, it's basically surplus value is being distributed among the workers. So in a way, it's still the contradiction of capitalism, yeah. like surplus value is created, but that contradiction, that surplus value is then dispersed among the people who create it. So, you know, is that not a... I um yeah I think that okay so <laughs> I think if capitalism sort of had like a sexual preference as a subject it would be like sadomasochism because it literally yeah. like gets off on suffering because you were saying uh, Peter right now this is like isn't capitalism suffering right now uh, but it's difficult to for me to sort of distinguish between what that suffering means whether it's suffering because it's ending or it's suffering because it's shifting into something else yes or, yes so yeah i just think that maybe um the way that capitalism works is like it sort of thrives in 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 in, in being sort of like tortured uh, out of shape yes yeah. yes yeah yeah no i think that's a that's a good way of thinking about it and the, the, the question is whether capitalism can only be overcome if there's a healthier society <laughs> or whether the healthier society is the result of a change in the mode of production. But uh, yeah. like for me, the next mode of production, um, the, you know, the next stage after capitalism would be a stage in which the contradiction of capitalism is not disavowed and then returns in that pseudo-masochistic way, but is integrated. Um, and and you know so what does that look like i mean the only way the only thing i can think about is democracy at work um it as 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 one example of what that might look like Mm -hmm. um and yeah and whether you know that's yeah i don't know i mean i think it i think it's it it's a for it's a beyond neurosis mode of mode of production so who knows if it looks like structurally similar to what capitalism looks like now, but it's just yeah. less frenetic. Yeah, yeah, and maybe that's uh, maybe that's one of the reasons why, uh, like the Soviet Union was such a disaster because it was trying to sort of like cover over. Um, it was trying to sort of like, what is it called, like uh, d- d- damage control. Uh, just like sort of like natural disaster, whether it's economic or like literally like environmental or whatever. By the way, is there like a connection? Have, has anybody said if there's a connection between like uh, global warming and and coronavirus? Well, like I haven't heard that. Well, like as in that coronavirus has dampened production, so it's we have less pollution, or that coronavirus was caused by global warming. That is caused by global warming. 
No, I haven't heard that. I haven't heard that. I've heard, I've heard a few. I've had heard a few kind of uh, theories, but not that one. Yeah. Maybe you could start that one if you wanted. Yeah, that would yeah. be fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But um, I mean, it's it's just, it's just funny because it's like you get all these like. There's just such a. And the way that that news are like spread now, and it's just like, oh yeah, here's this, uh, here's this research paper on like why microwaves are good, presented to you by like the companies of microwaves. So it's just like yes. even <laughs> even science and research right now is just like so tethered to capitalism and like. Yes. The, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm surprised. Yes. I'm surprised there hasn't been an article because I've seen lots of articles like that that connect the coronavirus with people's pet identity politics thing so um, so, you know well so i'm surprised that someone hasn't you know written that article yet (laughs) yeah yeah, yeah. what were you gonna say helen um i don't know i think i was gonna talk about uh quote unquote communist china when whoever it was uh brought up soviet russia i just it's something that i find totally fascinating that like why we call what you know obviously it's ccp in name but like this country is not communist in the slightest it's like it's CCP, our future. It, uh, uh, the Chinese Communist Party, like uh, it, in terms of like child pornography or something like that. And then your mind goes straight to the child pornography. <laughs> Sorry, like, we did a, we did an episode of what was it we were saying about like lizard people and the anyway. Um, yeah. The you know like I I also think it's quite yeah, China's not communist. It's not communist at all, and I think it's interesting like the way that I mean who knows what Absolutely will happen not, in the future yeah. in terms of like communists. Um, sorry, China's relationship to the West, but like the initial thing was obviously like, oh, nothing to see here. Oh, we're all friends because we're trade partners. Oh, let's mm. just order like a gazillion billion items from China of PPE. We love you. We love you because like <laughs> it's not communist at all. Anyway, yeah. I didn't. Well, know that, I, didn't I love the way that Zhuzhak talks about it. He, he says it's it? like capitalism with a human face. Yeah. Well, capitalism with a human. Is it human? Is it human? I think it's like, I think it's just like, it's just basically our future if like things keep going the way they are. Well, not, yes, it's, it's not human, it's just a human that, face. Yes, it, it, it might be like akin to like a mask or something like that. Oh yeah, because I thought like in, in one sense what we're seeing is is kind of uh, capitalism div- divorced now from things like democracy. Yeah, like, cause yeah exactly. Because exactly one, one yeah. of the things one of the things that's been good about capitalism historically is it has been connected with greater rights for people democracy yeah. and yet what you see in somewhere like china is actually <laughs> capitalism can be divorced from those things that's incredible <laughs> well yeah. what happens yeah in yeah. capitalism is the suffering gets so great on your doorstep that things yeah. have to change as in like industrial revolution britain but like obviously now we just ship that off to china yeah we don't and, care about maybe... suffering in china you know Maybe this is one of the reasons why, like Todd McGowan, is so like hesitant, or or he completely rejects the fact that you know somebody might call him like communist or even socialist or whatever. And I think it's the fact that, um, okay, so I don't know what you guys think that may, but maybe capitalism is even better than communism or socialism at integrating or including uh, contradiction within itself, Uh, because this is yeah. This is, I mean, this is a, this is actually something I've been thinking about recently. Is like if if I was an apologist for capitalism, that's the way I would argue. I would yeah. I would be arguing that that it is able to integrate 
contradiction. Now, I think that's wrong in the sense of it's it's correct that actually capitalism is very good at at managing crises because it is a crisis. Mm-hmm. But um, the <laughs> the question is uh, is it is it does it disavow? the it contradiction does. which it, i think it does yeah, yeah and then and then it returns so todd mcgowan's position i really like because todd is is saying that there is a way there's a there's a mode of production in which uh we can fully accept the lack which brings us back to alone you know you you, you accept the lack you you build a society around that lack yeah. and that that would have a very different political and economic mm-hmm. reality. Yeah. And, and and by the way, just on this, um, the the only reason why I call myself a Marxist is similar to what Shizek says. Is it's 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 not. It's only because I think Marx rightly sees how capitalism has a contradiction at its heart that it disavows. And I think that's what Todd McGowan. That Todd McGowan doesn't call himself a Marxist, but I think that like. Because if you say you're a Marxist, it, it presupposes all of these other things today. But yeah. for me, all I mean by it is that I agree with with the critique that's in Capital that there's yeah. a, there's a disavowed contradiction. What, what I was going to say is obviously capitalism traditionally does that very well with commodity fetishism. It covers over the contradiction. But now we have a situation. This is how we have oligarchy, where workers no longer need to be pandered to politically because we have such high levels of inequality. And this is where the next level of very blatant covering over the contradiction comes, which is identity politics. And that is because the commodity fetishism is failing. I think that's why we have identity politics. And then also, you know, from Todd McGowan's perspective, like let's say the system emerges from like our own subjectivity. Well, when when you come together around a shared lack that's a universalist yeah. position. So an economic mode, like the mode of production that comes comes from, let's say an ideological position of lack is gonna look very, very different from the ideological position of identity politics, which is defending and papering over contradiction. Yeah. And anything that's <laughs> well, individual you say, is you going could to say, it's just you yeah, could, yeah, it's capitalistic. Yeah. You, you could you could say that you know, you could say that like identity politics uh, is kind of the kind of late stage capitalism in the sense of it's it's an attempt to take the contradiction that's within capitalism and make it into an opposition in which there is some group that is causing the problem that basically we could all get to the table if we get rid of the bad apples, we get rid of the bad CEOs, we, we make uh, Wall Street more honest, we have uh, representation uh, at an economic level and that's that's kind of the latest attempt for capitalism to cover over its disavowed contradiction. Mm-hmm. That yeah. it's kind of like so instead and and what I love about Marx is one of the things I've I think is best about Marx is he critiques capitalism at its ideal. Yeah. He he assumes capitalism that has every person in it is working well. There's no bad apples. Every CEO is a nice person you'd have around for dinner. Um, yeah, he wants to take it hostage. Even if, yeah, yeah, and he—he—it's he, like Newtonian science. It's like you, you never see an object moving without resistances, but in science we go an object remains in motion if nothing you know acts upon it. In the same way, we never see a fully honest capitalism, but but Marx mm. uh, imagines a fully perfect capitalism precisely to show its inherent contradiction that I think identity politics by definition 
avoids. So, yeah. I mean, in terms of contradiction and this move towards identity politics, do you think if there were strong unions, like, I, to me, to me, financialization leads to identity politics. It, like, identity politics is the, is the defender of financialization. And union action betrays the contradiction, which is the exploitation of workers. Yeah, but like I think the unions would have to. I think they would have to become. I like how Zizek talks about like maybe what should be sort of like the goal of the left should be like uh, bureaucratic socialism. Maybe it would be a good idea to have like bureaucratic unions because there's all this. There's always this issue of just like oh, oh unions become privatized or mm-hmm. you know it, a lot of people just like criticize unions just because at some point they became corrupted. But really, that's just like sort of like, I don't know, maybe the, the idea is corrupt in itself, like at its core, but in a good way. But yeah, it's sort of like there's a, there's sort of like these additions to it that make it sort of like incompatible with, uh, you know, what people have in mind for bettering like workers sort of like a situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but I, I guess, it, you know, it does come back to this idea of like, and we talk about this a lot the cure as in for capitalism as in if we and this is where christianity comes in this is like the big c's capitalism communism the cure coronavirus christianity (laughs) so maybe this is where we we uh all declare ourselves like hyper christians and peter explains how always a good thing an atheistic position and how this might actually be the cure for capitalism. Yeah. <laughs> Helen, I well, love I mean, that. I love how linked. I was just, I was just going to say like okay. I love how uh, no matter what we're talking about, eventually we arrive at identity politics and a critique of it. Oh yeah, no, it's, it's because it's like it's just amazing. I yeah. know it's just yeah. so fun. I think it's the I think the thing is it's because and this is why you have like all the sort of court jester figures who have all been like deplatformed from it was because. You know, and, and how all of this fun emerges on the right. So, like, you know, Trump and then all these, like, cartoon villain type people. It's because it's just, like, it takes itself so seriously yeah. that all you can do is laugh at it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> what were you going to say, Peter? Yeah. Oh, yeah, well, just, yeah, picking up on, uh, you know, the, the big thing there of uh, the connection between with this with Christianity is an interesting one because... You know, Todd McGowan's position uh, is that the left went wrong when they um, basically gave up on Hegel's religious writings and political writings, mm-hmm. and uh, they took the dialectic, but they left behind Christianity. And yeah, uh, and his argument, as you guys know, but for the, the listener, is um, is that actually Hegel's notion of Christianity is that that eh, basically we encounter contradictions in life and we keep trying to overcome the contradiction every time we overcome a contradiction we find a deeper one more intractable and in christianity uh, eventually we are confronted with the idea that contradiction is embedded in the heart of reality itself so when when god says my god my god why have you forsaken me we realize that the absolute is also divided is also alienated 
And this experience of realizing that alienation is inherent in reality itself is the cure. So that's salvation in Christianity. It's the cure in psychoanalysis and it's maybe socialism and politics, democracy or whatever. Um, so yep. the reason why I like that is because it does give you a way of, of seeing an, something beyond capitalism. And it is, it is the idea of a political system that embraces its own alienation. That's kind of, yeah. that's the ideal, not, and, and not like, and this is Todd McGowan says, even in Marx, in Marx himself, there's almost like a, there's a way of getting beyond the kind of, all the contradictions, a kind of a utopia, going like, no, it's not. And I, I, there's a great example Todd uses um, where he says, like, imagine actually if we were in a society where, you know, we weren't alienated in our work, we got money, we didn't have to do things we didn't like. He says, well, all you, that wouldn't be great. That would actually maybe be even more terrible because now you go, I've got all the time in the world to write the book that I want to write. And then you write it and you realize you're a terrible writer. Right? <laughs> and so you, you kind of confront your, you know, an even deeper contradiction. Um, and in fact, ultimately death. Like imagine, uh, you know, Todd says that, uh, that whenever life is bad, death can seem like something that's not too ter- terrible. But if you're really enjoying your life, death is, is a bit of a nightmare. You know, you really like something, you know, your life, you go like, I don't want this to end. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if, if we had a society that was fair, it would be amazing, but it doesn't get rid of a contradiction. In fact, it just brings us to an even deeper one, which is death itself. I know this is yeah. the thing that I always, I always say about, um, and I think, you know, this is why I like st- structuralist politics is that like um, the individual is confronted by these things every day of their life and the wealthy okay they accumulate through their own actions but it's not like let's say it's like death drive it's not technically like their fault is the fault of their unconscious you know so and the the thing is it's like capitalism uh the, the winners also lose under capitalism obviously materially those who are wealthy are living in nice houses now and during this period of a month or two months when they have to be at home it's so much nicer with a swimming pool and a garden compared to like a tiny flat or a bedsit obviously but when you and i think peter's talking about melancholy which is technically like a a psychotic position um in that like a a dissolution of the 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 ego and we like create an, an ego is like a defense against the real an ego is like formed out of um frustration and if you don't have frustration like in your primary existence as like a baby then you maybe don't have an ego and you become like i don't know some form of autistic or something like that and there's you know on a certain level there's something we obviously don't want to we are unnatural (laughs) beings (laughs) yeah and we don't want that level of comfort because it's horrifying because We are creatures of language and we will confront the fact that nothing can keep us from the yeah. real. Well, so so here here's my cure, right? This is this is kind of, the, and this is the very naive, and I think I'm probably wrong, but I've kind of lived by it for a long time, which is um, <laughs> that can't go actually back, what we need. Can't go back, I know. <laughs> I'm not committed, as they say in poker. Uh, so it's basically that if... 
if we can create, and this brings me actually why I'm interested in institutions like the, the church, but if we can create communities that are able to embrace the dread of their being, they're able to take the weight of their anxiety, take responsibility, be able to free themselves from this frenetic desire to, to kind of like avoid the lack, that enough of these communities in a given city or a given country might provide um, enough of a uh, Archimedean point to make a, 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 a larger societal change. And this is what I call like insurrectionary communities. So a revolutionary community might be trying to change the world. An insurrectionary community kind of lives the difference now. And so a lot of my work is about going, how do we embrace the lack, embrace death, embrace alienation, uh, make peace with that? And if yeah. there's enough of us doing that, that can have a positive effect. And even if there, if it doesn't have a positive effect, it's it's great for the individuals. <laughs> so that's the, that's the plus is at least you've got a community of people that are detached from the frenetic pursuit of uh, you know of trying to get of trying to avoid dread or anxiety or the lack. Pete, do you do you consider that that position sort of like? Um... It's something okay. So, like for example, Marx talks about Marx talks about uh, communism as a step away from capitalism, but not something that is there to stay like forever or eternally or something. Or is that socialism? Sorry, like socialism. Yeah, yeah, capitalism, sorry. Social, yeah, 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 yeah. Socialism. Um, do you consider that sort of like um, th this sort of like theoretical thing of of uh, embracing your lack and and all of that? Do you think that that's a step away from capitalism, or it's it's beyond that? It's like once you get out of capitalism, that's sort of like a new way to live. Yeah, for me, what I've articulated there, I think, is what Hegel calls absolute knowledge. It's it is the cure. There's yeah. no now. There's obviously lots of beyond in terms of how it looks, but once you get to that point, then you you're you're experiencing beyond neurosis. You're experiencing that emancipation mm. or freedom. Um, and the reason for that is again, I I love the way Kierkegaard says this. He says. Um, which is basically, and this is from Kant, really. Uh, so for Kant, we are we are removed from our immediate existence as animals by a prohibition, by a categorical imperative. So we there's something comes into the world which just says no, the law. So no, no matter how pathologically selfishly interested you are in doing something, you shouldn't do it. No. And it, it's this call of a categorical imperative that that makes us human. And the reason it makes us human is because now we're caught between kind of basic cause and effect or desires or pathological interests. And then this this kind of call to to do something that is not self-interested, that is purely selfless. Yeah. And Kierkegaard calls that antagonism spirit. He says mm -hmm. spirit is, is the positivization of the contradiction that humans are. Mm -hmm. And the evidence of spirit is anxiety. Yeah, and so there's no, so if you can embrace that contradiction, you are embracing spirit. You are in, you're kind of, you're embracing kind of like the very essence of what it is to be human. So there's yeah. no beyond to that. I haven't been able I to think. understand like why 
Kierkegaard was so critical of Hegel. It seems that when I know, I know. when he's the most uh, critical of Hegel is when he's being like the most Hegelian. Yes, yes, and it's I, because I just, it's yeah. because he. Yeah, it was because he like he mostly, although he read Hegel a lot, he didn't he um he was he attended the lectures of uh, was it Schelling, who kind of really hated Hegel and so yeah. gave um so I because you're right I mean I haven't read much Kierkegaard but I'm reading him now and I'm having exactly that experience which is yeah. when Kierkegaard kind of critiques Hegel it's like no this this is Hegel what you're saying you're critiquing yeah. <laughs> is is very much what Hegel's saying oh, so, so you yeah, think that, that's very true he was a student of um wait who, who did you say was it Schelling Schelling, Schelling um, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and, and Schelling yeah, yeah. was so yeah. he kind of understood Hegel through Schelling yes uh, primarily okay. not like you know although Kierkegaard you know studied Hegel and said that he basically you know understood Hegel he actually was attending the lectures of Schelling and Schelling was definitely giving a very critical reading of Hegel um, yeah so I think I think that's why some people say that Kierkegaard had a slightly uh, uh, skewed view of Hegel because of that yeah <laughs> Helen, I, lo- I I love whenever like uh, Christianity comes up. You're just like, yeah, no, that's not that's not for me. Yeah, you guys, <laughs> mutant kids that grew up in. Church. You brought it up. Sorry, you, you you said you brought it up. You said Christianity know, is the but answer. Like, okay, it's true, but I didn't actually like, grow up in like some psychopathic church thing. <laughs> oh yeah, we're not talking about that. I know we're yeah, not. Yeah. I know, but like, I don't actually know anything about. Christian, like I don't know, like the Bible or like the- theology oh, yeah. or whatever. Yeah, That's right. But I've, yeah, yeah, I've always you said to you, the cure for you is Christianity. You have, you have to become a Christian. I've yeah, said that. Yeah, to you. yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I know, yeah. obviously. Um, oh God, there's something I was gonna say. Um, no, but it is funny how so many people who uh, thinkers throughout time, history, or whatever, who share share a similar worldview but are, are literal enemies. And I will say it once once again that Jordan Peterson and his fellow SJWs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How's yeah, he doing, yeah, by the they, way? They are interlinked. They're the same, yeah. How's he doing? He's still the same? The yeah. narcissism of small differences. Sorry. Oh, no. Uh, how is he? Yeah, do you know how he's doing? Peterson? Is, he, is he still in Russia or something like that? Wasn't he like no, doing some experimental? Florida. He's in Florida. Oh, I, okay. I saw his Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, is he doing okay? Is he, or is he still very sick? Um, Who knows? It, yeah, I suppose you don't I know. Think he's, he's, it seems like he's not as bad as it, it was, but yeah. Know. What's her? Um, uh, what's his uh, daughter's name, Helen? Michaela. Michaela, did you hear about this Michaela Gate thing? That Michaela no. is trying to kill Jordan Peterson. It's like this sort of like conspiracy <gasps> theory. Uh, but you know what I will Ooh. say is, um, when somebody. Okay, no, I don't want to get too personal about it, but I can see the dynamic of play of somebody within a family, and there's a clearly a strong father-daughter relationship there, and she's yeah. very absolutist about health stuff. So, but anyway, I, yeah, I don't want to get yeah. like, into personal shit, but anyway, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Anyway, yeah. Yeah. So should we, um, any closing remarks or... Oh yeah, because I'd love to say one final thing, which is just uh, we choose a quote from Lacan for the start of the film, which is love is giving what you do not have to someone who does not want it. And I, I wonder if you know my closing thoughts are around that, which is that the movie's all about 
everybody giving their lack. So people are saying to her, you know, we've suffered loss, we've suffered, you know, this lack. And she doesn't want to hear that. But as she's able to accept the lack that they're offering, she's able to come to terms with her own. And so um, I do like this idea that, uh, that there's something about kind of people sharing the lack that's not just a singing Imagine, uh, <laughs> some celebrity singing Imagine, but at a deeper level where we, we, we embrace the anxiety of subjectivity um, that, that has a political consequence that can actually kind of um, hint at a different, a, f- a fundamentally different way in which society can operate. It's yeah. interesting that, you know, the film is, uh, sorry, the story is, is a Buddhist parable. And I think there's like a, there's, you know, there's a, there's a Western uh, miss, a, a Western, it's not even misinterpretation, but a Westernization of Eastern traditions um, and Westernization as in like, yeah, this capitalistic, like totalizing idea that there's a oneness and we are, if you read all one as we are all one together. I mean, I think there was a reason why we wanted to like have the graphics display the three meanings because we're not all one, as in unified, mm-hmm. we are all fragments. Yes. Yeah. As in we're all- We all lack. We all yeah. lack. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to like, just maybe this can be the anti, not that we have like, <laughs> we've got hardly any listeners, this is the, the anti-Gal Gadot viral oh, yeah. video i just wanted to yeah. like read the um we're all gonna sing we're all gonna sing imagine the three of us i just, I just want to read the lyrics out of imagine so imagine there's no countries okay. it isn't hard to do there you go oneness right there although I'm the, not the new world order me. yeah nothing to kill or die for mm-hmm. and no religion too well we know peace against this imagine all the yeah. people yeah. living life in peace you may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you will join us and the world will be as one. Alone is the anti, it's the anti-cocad. Yeah. <laughs> the fine, yeah. I think it's so funny that like, um, obviously, what's it called? Um, Mad Men ends. A Mad Men goes from, goes from Freud to Jung. No, it ends with him dreaming up the, the, the cocad. Um, Imagine no possessions, I wonder if you can, no need for greed or hunger, a brotherhood of man. Imagine all the people sharing all the world. Yeah, you may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday we'll join us and the world will live as one. Yeah, that's the that's the <laughs> 1970s right there. Well, I mean. I like, I, I like how um, uh, you and Elliot, well, by the way, the people don't know, Peter has a, his podcast with uh, Elliot Morgan of the valley folk and it's called the fundamentalists but at the end of every episode they do like the takeaways and my takeaway from this whole thing is just like this COVID thing is sort of uh creating an event that allows the possibility for a new sort of universality but gal gadot is uh completely excluded from it that's my takeaway (laughs) (laughs) the exception Go, yeah, go for it. I was going to say that I just had the image of the, that cocad. Uh, what do they sing? Uh, I like to buy the world coke, and it's like they're all on a hill, and they're all different living together. Yeah. But I think it's like we are all the same, and yeah. we're all the same as contradiction. Like we are, as Zapanchit says, the ticks and grimaces of the universe. Like we are. I love that, yeah. We are each the contradiction, and that yeah. makes yeah. us the same. Yeah. Not any yeah, sort of she, like... Yeah identity quality or the fact that yes. we're all human it's, beings it's the, yeah. 
I mean, human beings, yeah, are the lack, basically. Peter, do you have any plugs? Um, do you want to say how people can watch the film? Is it out already or is it on Patreon or something? Uh, it's not at the moment, so keep an eye out. We're if anybody's a listener, just send me a message on Instagram if you want to see and I'll send you the private link. There you go. You get a little, that's a little gift <laughs> for your listeners. Mm. Nice one. <laughs> Listen, guys, this has been lovely. I mean, so happy to be on this. We talked for like two hours, so that was fantastic. <laughs> I really right. appreciate being a guest. Yeah, thanks, Peter. It's always good to have you here. Great. Bye-bye. All right. Bye. Bye.